My goal this morning, more than anything else, yes, we want to dig in, and I hope you see some things in this text that you've never seen before. But more than anything, my goal is that there would be an exaltation of Christ. And so instead of an introduction this morning, I'm going to do a, a reminder. So I know it's upside down. It's not an anticipatory set for those of you that are educators. That's all right. Um, it may actually prove to be an introduction. And some of you are going, wow, you've already had quite an introduction. <laughs> but, but I was thinking about this. I, I, I wanted to ask the question to start this morning. And the question is this, why are we here? Not why are we here on the earth. Why are we in mainstream right now? Why did uh, hundreds of people come to this place today to hear preaching? You know, why did, why did you come and, and invest two, three, four, some of you eight, 10, 12 hours of your Sunday to come and hear a variety of men open up a book that's old and preach from it? I think it's a question that we need to stop and ponder uh, pretty regularly. Because I think sometimes we can, we can neglect to, to actually think about the reason why we come and why we sit under the preaching of God's word. I was just thinking, I don't know all of your situations. I know some of you well. I know some of you less well. Some of you I've never met before. I don't know what this week has held for you. I can imagine that some of you guys have had a, a pretty good week, right? You've had a week where work was good. The boss was happy. Uh, the, the, the spouse was, was happy. The kids were obedient, mostly. Um, right? It was a good week. Things are pretty comfortable. But I also recognize that there's some of you in this room that this last week or these last months have been far but easy. Uh, You're in the midst of of trial. Maybe it's personal illness. Uh, Maybe you've had a long struggle with disease in your family. It's just ravaged your life. Uh, Perhaps it's death. Um, Maybe you're facing the death of a loved one or you're in the midst of seeing a loved one go through dying. Yesterday I had the privilege to come and attend the memorial service of Louise Essex. And uh, Louise Essex was the faithful wife and and, um, uh, co-laborer with Dr. Keith Essex here at the Master's Seminary for 25 years. In the last eight months, the Lord took her pretty rapidly through ALS. And uh, Dr. Essex told me, uh, this week, he said, the hardest part has not been death. He said the hardest part was the dying. It was the eight months of care. And so maybe, maybe you're in a situation like that where there's challenges. Perhaps there's financial difficulties that are just, you come, you come to church and you sit in the chair and the last thing you want to do is think about what I'm saying. You're thinking about how am I going to put food on the table this week or how am I going to pay the rent or how are we going to keep the lights on? You know, others, maybe it's just a relationship issue. Uh, one of the things you'll learn pretty quickly, if you haven't learned already, is that we're a group of people, and so we hurt each other. We're sinners, so we sin against each other. And so maybe that's what brings you here today. So with all those scenarios, I don't want to start as a downer, but I want to cause us to stop for a second and think, why do we give the next 45 to 80 minutes kidding. (laughs) Why do we take the next hour of our life and sit under the preaching of God's word? Now, let me give you a couple answers before we dig in our text. Listen to these passages, just a few that came to my mind, and you probably know some others. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Here's some reasons. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Or how about this one? Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction 
so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Maybe this one, 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Or how about this one? 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Hebrews 12, 1 and 3, here's another one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. My last one, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Now I could spend a lot of time on and on, text after text after text in the Old Testament and New that clearly shows the reason why we spend this time here is because we want to glorify God and we want to exalt Christ. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why we're going to take this, this, this time to explore and dig into Psalm 110. And I want to say this, as I said before, I want more than anything this morning that you and I might have a growing affection for Christ, that we might have a growing affection for his person, for his work, and for his glory. And that's why we come, that's why we're here, and that's why I'm going to preach. So I hope you're prepared. I hope your hearts are ready. I hope your pens are ready. I hope your Bibles are open. And if they are, please turn to Psalm 110 with me. Psalm 110. I picked this psalm this morning um, because of all of those things. Because I think this psalm we have here, a messianic psalm, a psalm that more than any other is, is very future-oriented, a psalm that gives us a picture of the Messiah's rule in such detail, in such fullness, that it's worth our time this morning. In fact, Dr. Varner says it this way. He says, this psalm, in this psalm, the entire redemptive career of the Messiah is outlined. Uh, furthermore, just another reason why we land here, this also happens to be the Old Testament passage that is most quoted in the New Testament. So we're going to see verse 1 is a very familiar verse that, that you uh, can reflect on all throughout the New Testament. The text itself we're going to look at today is divided into three equal parts or three sections that we'll look at. And what we're going to look at, what I want to call this, um, what I want to uh, give you as my plural noun proposition, um, we want to see the three expressions of Jesus Christ's lordship out of this psalm. And what it should cause in us, my desire, is that you would have a yearning for his return, number one, and that you would have a dramatic, it would have a dramatic effect on the way that you live your life. It would be something that would give you a burning in your bones, a desire to live a life of godliness and holiness today. That's what we're going to do. And what I want to just give you the outline quickly, what we're going to see, three parts. In verses one to three, we're going to look at the kingly reign of Christ, the kingly reign of Christ. In verse 4, we're going to see the priestly intercession of Christ. And then in verses 5 to 7, we'll see the victorious return of Christ. So if you're there, uh, Psalm 110, I want to read it. And I'm going to pray for us, and we'll dive in. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you might speak through me today, Father. That you might, as that uh, song says, fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Thank you for this time that we have in your word. And Father, may you open our eyes and our hearts to see, to appreciate, to love Christ even in, in a more full way today. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, before jumping into the text, into our first point, I want to make a couple of really important uh, observations at the outset that I think are vital to this text that set the stage for us. And, and by doing that, we're going to look at verse 1. You'll notice this is probably uh, one of the most famous um, verses, right? Many of you know this verse as soon as I read it, popped into your mind. You're thinking of places in Hebrews or the book of Acts or Matthew where you've heard this verse. What's it say? It says, the Lord says to my Lord. And it's important here to note something that you can't see in the English. Um, the first word here actually in the Hebrew is a word in the text that's used 360 times in the Old, Old Testament, but only once in the Psalter. So that means it's only used here. It's a word that means utterance or whisper. It's a word that's used uh, throughout the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, Zechariah. It's used often as a word that introduces an oracle. Okay? It's, a, it's a word of, of prominence because, because this word says there is an utterance of authority. It often is tied to the word that we see here at the beginning of the English, the Lord, and as you know well from uh, being trained well here at Grace, it's all caps. So that means that we're talking here about Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. Now, this is so important for us to understand this opening phrase because from the outset, this is going to tell us a little bit about what's to come. We have to recognize that there's an emphasis here on the divine nature of this psalm. Right? From the very beginning, it's saying, Yahweh says to my Lord. And that's vital because throughout this psalm, you're going to see this just as Dr. Buznitz so clearly laid out for us there in Psalm 118, Yahweh is prominent, right? This is a oracle from God. And that's important because what follows should, should all be understood through that lens. This is Yahweh speaking to us through this, this psalm. Now, uh, from the outset, as I said, we see Yahweh at the beginning. It's clear. We know who Yahweh is, right? Yahweh is the God of the scriptures. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the God that created all uh, of the earth, right? All of the universe, you and I. He's the God that chose for himself a, a special people, the Israelites, that set apart um, a people for his own choosing. He's the God who gave them commands at Mount Sinai and the God who brought them into the promised land, isn't he? So at the beginning, we know this, this God. But the question is, who is my Lord? 
When it says the Lord says to my Lord, this is key. It's a key question in this psalm because this is going to open up the rest of this text to us. It's going to help us to understand it. So who is my Lord? Uh, it, perhaps it's just one of the descendants of David. There's some commentators uh, that I read through. I didn't spend a long time reading in them. But there were some that would say, oh, this is talking about one of the sons of David. So maybe Uzziah or maybe Josiah or maybe Solomon. It's a question we have to ask, right? Is the identity that simple? Is this just an enthronement psalm where Yahweh is saying something to a human king? Or is there more? Uh, Turn with me real quickly to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. Because what I want to do quickly is I want to show you that Two reasons and two places in scripture that I think clearly articulate that this is more than just a human descendant of David. All right, two places. The first place is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Matthew 22, and there's a fascinating exchange that happens here between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 22. Uh, In the preceding context, which we're not going to spend time reading all the way through, but let me summarize, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees Uh, They've tried to trick and trap Jesus. They've been asking him question after question, trying to catch him in his words. And Jesus, we know, if you've read the text, is is perfectly adept, as he always is, at getting out of all those traps, of answering just perfectly and precisely. Well, there's a sudden change in our text. And what happens is Jesus flips the roles and he asks them a question. And this question is important to us. So let's look at, starting in verse 41... Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And and the significance here is that it's changed, right? They've asked him question after question after question. And he says, let me ask you one. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, we have to stop and pause. So far, so good. He asked them a question, and and these these, uh, good Jews who would have known 2 Samuel 7 well and would have known their, their Bible, their Old Testament, rightly answer the son of David. But Jesus continues. He said to them, verse 43, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Now, Notice, first of all, I wish I could answer questions like that when I was a teacher. Um, Notice quickly a couple things from the text that it's interesting. Jesus clearly quotes from our text, doesn't he? He quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1 in this passage. You may have caught this as well. There's a lot of commentators that don't think David wrote Psalm 110. I have one answer that I think beats them all. Jesus thought David wrote Psalm 110. That's all I need to know. I'm good. Right? Twice he says in this text that David is the author of the psalm. And in verse, verse 43, he says that David spoke these things in the spirit. It's absolutely clear that Jesus recognized here that David was the human author who was inspired or moved by the Holy Spirit, as, as we hear from Peter, to pen Psalm 110, this oracle of Yahweh. Okay? Also, I want to just note as an aside that the, the rabbinical teaching during Jesus's day, and even the time of David, was unanimous that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. Okay, so so I share this because this, this lays out the field clearly for what's coming. Jesus asked this question, 
And the reason why it's so striking and why they're, they're totally dumbfounded is because it's astonishing to them to think that David would call his son, my Lord. In fact, in Jewish tradition, in that type of a familiar standard, right? A father would, would never call his son, my Lord. It would be flipped, wouldn't it? The son would refer to his father as my Lord. So the logical answer that Jesus affirms here in the text, it doesn't say it right out, but this is exactly what he's getting at. The Pharisees don't get it. It's that the Messiah of whom Psalm 110 speaks, the my Lord, must be more than just a more mere mortal man. He must be divine. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says about this. He says, the answer to the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Must therefore be, he is both the son of David and the son of God. All right, so keep that one in your hopper. We're going to move on to another one. So Acts chapter 2, turn to Acts chapter 2, just a few pages forward. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 36. I want to read this passage to you. Sorry, I'm fighting a bit of a cough, so the fact that I haven't coughed yet is the Lord's grace. Acts 2, 29 to 36 reads, Brethren, I may, and this is Peter speaking, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did he, his flesh suffer decay. Listen to this, 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, keep that in mind, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, listen to our text here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, this is vital. This is so crucial to the rest of our psalm because both of these texts make it totally clear that the Messiah, the my Lord that we ask the question of in Psalm 110 verse 1 is none other than Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's the son of God who came to earth as the son of David, who lived a perfect sinless life, who went to the cross and died for sinners just like you and I. And this is crucial. The reason why I've taken some time on this is this is crucial to understanding the rest of our psalm. Because when we go back to Psalm 110, as we're going to do now, what we'll recognize is this is showing us Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of this prophetic psalm, messianic psalm given by David a a thousand years before his birth. That's incredible and something we need to make crystal clear that we understand. It also shows us how the office of king, priest, and judge comes together in Christ. So let's go back to Psalm 110. Those are our foundational points. They've been laid out. And let's look at our first point in the text, which is this. Verses 1 to 3, here's our first heading, the kingly reign of Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, and in holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. So the first section of our psalm, as I titled, it looks closely at the aspect of Christ's lordship from the perspective of his reign as a king. And we're going to find several subpoints in this particular section that flesh out what it means, what the kingly reign of Christ looks like. Uh, first, let's look from our text, his divine enthronement as king. And that's in verse 1, his divine enthronement as king. Uh, notice, what does Yahweh say to my Lord, to Messiah? He says, sit at my right hand. And from the outset, we have to pause for a quick second because sit at my right hand can mean a variety of things. You know, myself, as I was thinking through, what would I think of sit at my right hand right now? How would I use that phrase? Well, sit at my right hand usually is when one of our children has not quite obeyed. Um, I saw my daughter left, so that's, <laughs> that's appropriate, right? One of our kids hasn't obeyed, and I say, hey, 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 come here. Come, come sit right next to dad, right? Because I want him close, within an arm's reach, Right? Right? So it's, it's that sitting in time out, let's say. But there's also another one, right? It's the sitting that I experience sometimes after a long day of work, after a, a, a hard day and I come home and I, what do I want to do? I want to collapse in my easy chair and I want to sit because I'm tired out, right? So I think a lot of times we think of sitting at my right hand as we're timed out or we're tired out. But that's not, ex- that's not exactly what's going on here in the ancient Near East, Right? Here in the text, what do they mean by this? This sitting was, was, was not because you're tired. It's not because the king, you know, Yahweh wants him close to him because he's got to make sure he's disciplined well. No, instead, this is actually a sign of honor and majesty. You know, in fact, in this day, the kings were the ones that sat down. And who stood? Their servants. Their servants stood right at their hand, ready to go the minute they had something that they needed. That's what he means here. The expression here notes glory and honor. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a glory and honor given to the one that's sitting right next to the king. Right? There's one passage in the scripture uh, where it speaks of where Solomon calls his mother Bathsheba to come and sit at his right hand. And he gives her a throne. And he bows before her and he welcomes her and seats her at his right hand. It's a, it's a place of honor. In the New Testament, we see this exact same uh, reality. Uh, Hebrews 10, 10 through 12, regarding Jesus, after he had offered himself as a sacrifice once for all, for the sins of all that would believe, what's it say in that text? It says he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So to sit at the right hand of Yahweh was to say that this Messiah, this Lord, was to be exalted to the place of highest honor and dominion. Now, there's other texts. Colossians 3.1 just reiterates this. It speaks, we know this text well, right? Seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Or Hebrews 1.3-4 tells us that when Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Time and time again, the scriptures connect the dots and show us that Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is a place of honor and majesty. And that's what this text is saying. Yahweh's saying, sit in a place of honor and majesty and exaltation. 
But the oracle uh, continues. Look back to the text. Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is a phrase that uh, in the ancient Near East also pictures something a little bit unique. You might think of a footstool for your feet as, again, something you put your feet up to, to take a rest. Um, not exactly what they're thinking of here. In the ancient Near East, this is actually a, a picture of absolute victory. And I'll give you an example from the Old Testament. A conquering king would publicly display his victory over a vanquished foe by putting his feet physically on the head or the neck of that foe. Um, you don't have, we won't, won't go there, but Joshua chapter 10, if you want to jot it down, is an example from the Old Testament. In, in Joshua chapter 10, 22 to 25, Joshua and the army of Israel have been battling the Canaanite peoples, and, and they're basically trying to rout this army, and they do. And they conquer these five Amorite kings who kind of like go and hide in a cave. And, and near the end of the battle, the text says that when they brought the kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and he said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua then said, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. See, this is the understanding of the text here. To make his enemies as a footstool for his feet was to demonstrate the Messiah's right to reign as king. So as Yahweh says, come and have a seat at my right hand. Until the time that I make your enemies as a footstool for your feet. What he's saying is he's saying, you have full vested royal authority, the same authority that I, Yahweh, have as king. Now, again, in the New Testament, we see this exact same reflection. Uh, a passage that comes to my mind is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, and, and they read as following. It says that Jesus was raised from the dead and that God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's our connection. But listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And listen to the next Next phrase, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse 1 shows us clearly Christ's divine enthronement as king. Yahweh says to my Lord, to Messiah, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies in subjection. That's what he does. But there's another sub-point. And that's not only his divine enthronement, but his divine enablement as king. Look back to our text, verses 2 and 3. Yahweh doesn't stop just at a provision of a throne. He doesn't just stop at dominion and authority, but verses 2 and 3 actually tell us how that authority is realized and brought about. Look at the text. It says, The Lord will stretch forth your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I just want to note again, and I'll say this throughout our, our time this morning. Note how unified is the relationship between Yahweh and this Messiah, right? Again, Yahweh is talking with intimacy about this Messiah. And in Yahweh, in this, in this text, I don't know if you caught it, it says, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, right? The point here is Yahweh is the one who wields the scepter, and the king is the one that's called to rule and reign. 
And I, I think what, what's going on here and what we see over and over and over again is that we see Yahweh proclaiming to the Messiah, predicting what's going to be done, and through it all, he's the one giving the enablement. I mean, we heard about it this morning in Psalm 118, didn't we? Have you, have you, I, was, I was blessed by considering what it would be like for Christ to sing through that psalm and to think as he's making his way to Calvary, all of the promises of refuge and strength that are in that psalm. And, and I'm sure that there were many passages that went through Christ's mind as he, as he made his way to the cross. But how often do you think he just continued to go back to the fact that Yahweh was on his side? That the father who he knew, that the father who he had spent eternity in perfect union with, that there was a, a time coming when he could be back in union with him. I mean, it's an amazing, hope-filled thought. And that's exactly what the Messiah experiences here. There is a divine enablement, right, that, that Yahweh is going to give him what he needs to put his enemies under subjection. Now, the word or the phrase stretch forth here is a phrase that carries the idea of, of kind of the, the demonstration of authority or the declaration of sovereign decree, or sometimes it's even seen as a transference of power. A couple examples that you can think of from the Old Testament. King Azareth, um in the book of Esther. If you remember, when Esther comes in to, to, to meet him, what was, she, what was she hesitant for? She was hesitant because if he didn't stretch out his scepter to her, she'd be killed. But we know in the text that he does stretch out his scepter. It's a, it's a sign of acceptance. There's another passage we think of Exodus 14, when Moses stands before the Red Sea, and what does he do? He stretches out that staff, and the word here in the Hebrew is staff. So in that same way, Moses stretches his staff, he divides the waters, and it indicates the active role in those cases, right? The active role as Moses stretches his staff that God plays. And in this case, God plays an active role in the duty of the king. Yahweh stretches out that scepter. So God calls the Messiah here, the king, to exercise his authority by ruling in the midst of his enemies, uh, one more thing, notice in verse 3, it says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. I'll be honest, this is the most difficult verse in the psalm uh, to translate, and commentators have a host of different uh, interpretations. But I think overall, the focus here is it's the use of military language here. And I think what's going on is, is it's, it's a transition to, to the thought of a battlefield. And what, what's happening here is Yahweh is clearly articulating that he will provide an army that is consecrated, that's fully prepared, that's ready for service for the Messiah. So that army, they're abundant as the dew at dawn. They're prepared in their holy array. They're willing and ready and able to fight alongside their king. And so ultimately what we see here is that Yahweh promises that the Messiah will be divinely enthroned and divinely enabled to reign and rule as king. And just as a quick application, what great hope and encouragement this should cause us to experience in this room today. I mean, to think that Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, is now, even now, seated at the right hand of the Father. That he's now enthroned, invested with all authority, with all dominion, with all power in heaven. 
How encouraging to remember that Jesus, this divine Messiah, that he was the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. The promised seed spoken of there, who by his finished work on the cross would do what? Would defeat that serpent of old and crush his head under his feet. What a glorious truth it is to think that Christ our King has won the war. He's conquered sin and death. He's given us the victory. And now all we do is await his coronation. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 reminds us that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When I read that, and I think about what we started with, when I think about all of the challenges and difficulties that may exist in this room even right now, if that's our state in Christ, shouldn't we have great confidence? Shouldn't we have great and glorious and rapturous love for this Savior who has done this on our behalf? The psalm doesn't end here, obviously. We've seen the kingly reign of Christ. I want to show you in verse 4, the priestly intercession of Christ. Read it with me. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now here in verse 4, the psalm takes a bit of a, a, an unexpected detour. Right In verse 1, we read of Yahweh's divine oracle, but now we hear something a bit new. Now we hear of Yahweh's divine and irre, irrevocable oath. Right? What did it say? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. I don't know if you guys have ever had this. Some of you, any fathers in the room? You can put your hand up. It's all right. I, I like interaction. There we go. Okay. Fathers in the room, <clears throat> have you ever told your kids, that's it? I'm not changing my mind. Final answer. No? Nobody? Okay. Maybe it's just me. Right, right. Final answer. Well, we're human. Does that always prove true? Unfortunately, no. There's been many times I've said final answer, and then three answers later, my wife's saying, hey, final answer, huh? (laughs) Here's the joy. Yahweh, the Lord, when he swears, he doesn't change his mind. So the promise of verse 4 here, we can take to the bank. It clearly indicates here that God has no intention of changing his plan or his purposes, that he's going to bring everything to pass as he sees fit. So when he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, Messiah, are a priest forever, we can take that one all the way to the bank. The first three verses, why this is such a change, though, is because the first three verses we're talking about the Messiah is king, right? And all of a sudden he changes, he turns his attention now to the priesthood of the Messiah. Now, why is that an issue? You're a priest forever. You know, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might think, okay, that's great. Let's move on to verse 5, 6, and 7. Aaron, give us the third point. We're good. He's a priest. Thank you. But there's so much going on here. In Psalm 110, if we understood the extent of this expression and the challenge that it would create in the mind of a Jew of David's day or even Jesus' day, then we would take some time to stop. And I'm going to do that because here's the big deal. This would be the first time in the history of the nation of Israel that there would be a king simultaneously serving as a priest. And why is that so, right? Some of you know this, right? We'll do a little historical study here. You might know that the priesthood belonged to the tribe of Levi, 
right? Levi, and specifically, I take a little bit of pride in this, right? The family line, the high priesthood was to the line of Aaron, right? Okay. Just don't bring up Exodus 32 and the whole golden calf thing, right? So now no one from the tribe of Judah or any other tribe except Levi was ever allowed to serve as priest. In fact, there's a couple examples from the Old Testament that will help you just see that. 1 Samuel 13, jot it down. 1 Samuel 13, in the text, this is the first king of Israel, Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul is, is king, and he's, he's fighting the Philistines. He's getting a little bit nervous because you know, Samuel said, hey, I'm going to be gone for a bit. I'll come back and just wait for me. Well, Saul sees the Philistines approaching. He's, he's starting to, to fret. And so he does something he wasn't supposed to. He wrongly acted as a priest and he offers a burnt offering and he offers a peace offering. And in, in God's amazing uh, literary style, right? The text says, and immediately following Samuel appears. And it's almost like Saul's like, here's the smoke's going up and here comes Samuel. And what's the result? What happens? Samuel tells Saul, that the kingdom has been removed from you and has instead been given to a man after God's own heart. And some would say, boy, that's a little harsh, right? It's all just, he's just trying to offer a sacrifice. No, what was he trying to do? He was trying to gain the favor of Yahweh in this battle without obeying Yahweh. There's another text, 2 Chronicles 26. This is one that's, that's striking. Here we have King Uzziah. King Uzziah is another king. He's in the line of David. <coughs> Excuse me. Uzziah was a good king. He reigned for 52 years. Uzziah is one of those guys that it says in verse 4 of chapter 26, he did right in the sight of the Lord. But unfortunately, and later on in the text, it says this, that later in his reign, he became strong and his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to Yahweh, his God. And how? He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Text tells us that Azariah, an 80 strong, noble priest, go in after him and say, get out. This is not for you to do, Uzziah. And Uzziah says, oh yeah? And instantly what happens? Leprosy breaks out all over him. And then he freaks out and he leaves. And he spends the rest of his days living separated, not able to reign. In fact, his son reigns the rest of his days because of it. Those two examples from the Old Testament that clearly show that the role of king and priest were clearly designed to be distinct, weren't they? So in our text, how can the Messiah be a priest? That's the question. Well, look back to our text. It says, you are a priest. What follows? According to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, and this is an important phrase that you may be familiar with, you may not be, and I want to spend a few minutes here because here David, by the Holy Spirit, speaks of Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? Turn quickly back to Genesis with me, Genesis 14, and I want to quickly take us on a whirlwind tour. Who was Melchizedek? Back in Genesis 14, starting in verse 17, there's, the context here is, this is the time of Abraham, or Abram at the time. There's been a war, and he, is, he and his uh, nephew Lot have settled in the land of Canaan. And at one point, Lot gets stolen along with all the possessions, and he gets taken uh, to one of the, by one of the kings of the land. And Abram hears about this, and he takes 318 guys. I love it, 318. 
of his men and he pursues them. He goes, he finally overtakes them. He recovers Lot. He recovers all of their possessions and he brings them all back home. And that's what takes us to Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. And it says this, then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, here's our guy, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Now, I don't know if you caught that. Melchizedek is here in three verses and then he's gone. We don't hear of him again until later on in Psalms and in Hebrews. Right? The interesting thing is that Melchizedek, we don't know a lot about him, do we? All we know is what the text says here. And what's it say? It says this Melchizedek, he was a Jebusite priest. He was of the the most high God. He was a priest of the most high God. He ruled over what was ancient Salem. That's generally believed to be Jerusalem. Okay. This is before it's been uh, conquered by the Israelites, of course. His role here is both king and priest. And and this made him the perfect prophetic uh, type for the Messiah that we see in our Psalm. What is more, Melchizedek, even the name, means king of righteousness. And it should cause us to connect with another text. Turn with me to Jeremiah 23. The king of righteousness. Keep that in your mind. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It's interesting what Jeremiah says here. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, branch is just another name for the Messiah. Through Jeremiah, God declared that there would be a future day coming when he would raise up a descendant of David, it said in the text, the Messiah, known as the branch, who would reign as king and do justice and righteousness. He would be a king of righteousness, just like Melchizedek. Turn ahead to Zechariah chapter 6 in verse 11. I promise we'll slow down soon. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11, we see that God through the prophet Zechariah declares the following, take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He's a king. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Did you notice it? This prophecy points clearly to a day when the branch, the same branch Jeremiah speaks of, the one that would be a king of righteousness would also be a priest. He would also be one who was a king of peace, says in the text. And this is exactly what we read in Psalm 110. This is the whole connection here. Isn't God's word incredible that we'd have this, this, these prophecies given 
by David a thousand years before Christ, by Zechariah 500 years before Christ, and that they, they're accurate and they're consistent. Turn back to Psalm 110 with me, because we're not quite done. There's one more piece of gold here that I want to uh, show you. It says, you are a priest forever. And this word's vital because this Messiah that would be a priest is a priest forever. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a passage of scripture that should come to your mind when we think of Melchizedek, and that is Hebrews chapter 7. So if you're there, you can turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 7. And I want to show you this connection of Melchizedek because it's so key. In Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1, note how the author of Hebrews highlights this fact that Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and of peace. Listen to what it says. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, we could spend time to go all the way through chapter 7, and and I would encourage you on your own time to spend some time today to read chapter 7. It's a beautiful picture of the eternal priesthood of Christ. When Psalm 110 says that he is a, a high priest, a priest forever, right? A priest forever. The promise that we find here is the joy and blessing that we have a high priest who doesn't have to go and make sacrifices for himself. We have a high priest, as it says in Hebrews 7, that is once for all, once for all made a perfect sacrifice and has sat down at the right hand of the father. We also know that this high priest is an eternal priest who every day lives to make intercession on our behalf. And what an amazing truth to know that Christ is the priest of this new and better covenant. He doesn't have to continue to do the sacrificial system, the five different sacrifices that would be made. He doesn't have to make atonement for himself. He's a perfect, sinless high priest. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. And this should give us great hope this morning, shouldn't it? Because when Psalm 110 speaks of this this high priest, we should hear, this is Jesus Christ. This is the high priest, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've seen the kingly reign of Christ. We've seen his divine enthronement, his divine enablement as king. We've seen the priestly intercession of Christ, his divine appointment. Lastly, let's look at the victorious return of Christ. Back to Psalm 110 with me in verses 5 to 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Verses 5 and 6 in this psalm seem to be elucidating verses 1 and 2. They kind of lay out how Yahweh, through the Messiah, would subdue his enemies and make them his footstool. One commentator says the the scene has shifted from the throne room to the battlefield here. And the introductory phrase of verse 5 is interesting. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. 
Now, you might have noticed earlier in the text, right? It started out with the reality that Yahweh said, sit at my right hand. And now in verse 5, Yahweh says, right, the Lord. David says, Yahweh is at your right hand. It's this flip, this, this little change. And what's interesting here is uh, Pastor John takes this phrase, as I do as well, to be spoken of Yahweh being at the right hand of my Messiah for this reason. It pictures Yahweh's supplying of the needs that Messiah has. This is Yahweh saying, I'm at your right hand now, and I'm going to stretch forth my right hand, my powerful right hand, to make sure that your enemies are subdued and under subjection to you. It's in essence saying that Yahweh will go into battle with the Messiah King and will support and strengthen him for the path ahead. Look back to verse 5. It, it, it illuminates this more. It says that he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. This should be reminiscent of uh, Psalm 2, another messianic psalm that says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. Listen, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Like our passage here in Psalm 110, the language here is of wrath and judgment. It's that Messiah will be given the nations as an inheritance, that, that he'll break them and shatter them. And it's, it's interesting because both of them share this similar language that point to a, a glorious event. You know, when we hear the day of wrath, that should cause us to pause, right? The day of wrath is not something that, that most people look forward to. We don't look forward to wrath. But for a believer, the day of wrath points us in the direction of something glorious, doesn't it? The day of wrath is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the day of the Messiah's return. It's the day when Christ returns. It's the day when the until, in verse 1, is finished. When everything is put under subjection to the throne of Christ. Joel 2, 1 and 2 is a passage that talks about this day of the Lord. Listen to it. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations." You see, this day of the Lord, this points to Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9. It points to the reality that there's this day when God's wrath will be poured out upon unrepentant sinners, that it will be a day of preparation as Christ will come and will spend a thousand years reigning on the earth, where he will be king, and he will be priest, and he will be judge. And we see this. Look in our text, verse 6. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. God talks here clearly of how he will destroy all the kings in the day of wrath. It's a total victory. He'll judge among all the nations. It's clear that when Christ returns, he will come as a conquering king. He will judge the nations with perfect justice and perfect righteousness the king of righteousness, and ultimately the king of peace. We know as well, though, something that's a, a beautiful truth that follows. 
The judgment will come to a day of finality, won't it? Revelation 20 tells us that there is a white throne judgment to come on which all will be judged with perfect justice. And after that point, at the end of that point, there is a new heaven and a new earth that will come to pass. And Christ's role as judge will subside. And we'll see our final point in verse 7, that there will be this exaltation of him as Lord, fully, completely. What's it say in verse 7? He'll drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. It's an interesting phrase to close out the, the text with, this passage. It indicates basically the exaltation of this king over his domain. The Messiah, the priestly king, will receive all honor and all glory and all praise from his subjects. And isn't this a complete contrast to what happened in his first advent? You think about it. When came the first time, he got nothing but scorn and he was mocked and he was rejected. But at his second, he will be exalted. He will be exalted. I love what Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says. One of my favorite passages in scripture. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, what a joy that this Christ, this Messiah, has been exalted to the highest place. He's been given the name of of every name. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day when the trumpet will sound and he will come back. And he will come back as a, what we've seen in the text, as a king. God's divinely enthroned him. God's divinely enabled him. Christ is presently on the throne. He's sovereign over all things. He providentially is working in your life and mine to build his kingdom, to build his church. And he does it even through us, ultimately for his glory. Oh, that we would live those consecrated lives, those holy lives with this in mind. We're servants of the great king. He's going to come back. Don't you want to be a part of verse 3, that army that, that comes with him? We've also seen the priestly intercession of Christ. God's divinely appointed him as priest. He's presently making intercession on your behalf and mine. He hears us when we cry out to him. When, when you've had a, a rough week, when you've had a rough month or year or decade, he's an ever-present help. He's a refuge. Oh, that we would come to him as our priest, knowing that he's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And may we leave today looking forward to the victorious return of Christ. Remember, he's just sitting there waiting for judgment. He's sitting there waiting for his father to say, it's time. And when that happens, he will return. He will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And that should mark the way that we live amongst our neighbor. That should mark the way that we live amongst our fellow employees employers. That should mark the way that we live even here in mainstream, shouldn't it? He's coming again. I just, my prayer for each of you and myself this morning is that our lives would be clearly marked by a deep desire to see this king, this priest 
this Lord return. And when he returns, I want to hear good, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. Do you guys want to hear the same? I want to hear that you are pleased, Father, with the way that I have served in honor of your King, your Messiah. And I think Psalm 110 does a great job of setting that up for us in a place that we can come back to and say, whenever you, you get distracted and life is hard, pick up Psalm 110. Read through it and remind, remind yourself of who Christ is and when he's coming back, what he's going to do, and the hope and the future that that gives us in the present as well, how we should live and live for him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are overjoyed with the prospect of knowing that you are ever working in our lives sovereignly, providentially, working through your Messiah, your Messiah that the, the Jews in reading Psalm 110 or hearing this song sung would have looked forward to a day when he would come. And yet, Lord, we are so, good, uh, so gracious and grateful that we can look back, that we can see Jesus Christ, the one that you have exalted as Lord. May we live our lives with this text in mind, even today as we go out, help us to think through this, to ponder the way that we live even now. May we be inspired, may we be motivated to serve our King, to honor him with all of our lives. And we do that ultimately, Lord, that you might be glorified. We praise you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.